0: Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting Knowledge and Virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Joe Rigney, President of Bethlehem College and Seminary. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO Jeremy Tate engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback. So please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at CLTExam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation.
1: Welcome back to Anchored, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, Today, we have uh, the new president of Bethlehem College and Seminary, uh, Dr. Joe Rigney. Uh, Joe is the author of five books, Live Like a Narnian, Christian Discipleship, and Lewis's Chronicles, The Things of Earth, Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts, Lewis on the Christian Life. Uh, Dr. Rigney, thanks so much for being here today.
0: Uh, It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: So, Joe, we love to start off uh, first and just congratulate you uh, on your, your new position at Bethlehem College and Seminaries. It's, it's a gem of a college uh, with, with a clear Christian commitment and a love for the great books. Uh, congrats to you. I'd love to start off, though, and hear a bit about your own educational background, uh, how you discovered this tradition.
0: I, uh, I discovered it like many people after it was, after I would have liked to. So, um, I'm in the, the, one of those positions of trying to give other people the education I wish I would have had. So, uh, I grew up and I, I got a good ed- education in West Texas. Um, I went to a, uh, growing up, I went to a private elementary, um, not Christian, not classical, just a private elementary school. Uh, and then did public education after that. Um, you know, I was a Friday night lights, um, was, was my high school. So West Texas, uh, high school football, I played football. And so that was, that was sort of my world. I had some good professor, good, uh, good teachers, um, in that, in that context, um, that instilled in me a love of literature and and some different things like that. Um, but then I went to Texas A&M university and, uh, I was a communication uh, major and an English minor. And I'd say, uh, a certain kind of love of literature was instilled in me there I had again some great professors, uh, particularly in relation to English literature, which I think is is sort of my. Um, if I have to if I have to pick, and if you had to to situate me within all of the kind of literatures there are, um, I'm definitely an anglophile. And so, uh, so you know, loving and literature, loving philosophy, and then came up to to Bethlehem to uh, uh, thinking I was going to be a pastor, um, and went to a seminary here. And then um, during my time here was when we um, launched. At the time, it was just a one year. Um, kind of Christian worldview program that we offered, and uh, I was involved kind of at the at the ground level of that. And then over time, that kind of just developed and grew till it became Bethlehem College. We also had a seminary at the time, and so that uh, about twelve years ago now was the the birth of Bethlehem College and seminary. And uh, so I've been teaching here from the ground up. This is I've been it's 12, 12 or thirteen years now of teaching, um, and then uh, and then now we'll get to to captain the ship here.
1: Fantastic. Uh, Dr. Rigny, we share a great love for Lewis, and, and you really are, I think, a, a top C.S. Lewis scholar. Um, this year, for the first time ever, I read Abolition of Man, and as soon as I finished, I started Abolition of Man again, uh, okay. just reading it right away for the second time. It, it's really, I want to read one quote and maybe have you elaborate on the beginning of the second chapter. Lewis says that the practical result of the education in the spirit of the Green Book, and by that, I think he means modern progressive education, must be the destruction of the society, which accepts it. Uh, for Lewis, this seems like really loaded language. Like, you know, I I can't recall where he speaks so shockingly in some ways. Um, what, why is, can you unpack this or speak about why, why he's going so bold here?
0: Yeah. So, um, Lewis's view of modern education was, was very negative. Um, and it had to do with a number of different things. I think the heart of it, um, is really the way that modern education undermines any notion of, uh, objective reality and, and divides, um, you know, statements of fact from statements of value, uh, the way that, um, it marginalizes any kind of our value statements. So when we think about what's good and evil or true or false, even, um, those sort of statements are are sort of pushed to the side and everything becomes um, subjective. So there's a a subjective turn. He has actually has another essay, which is basically abolition of man in essay form. So even smaller called the poison of subjectivism. And, and I think that really um, uh, highlights what he thinks the, the subjective turn in philosophy and in educational um, circles, he thought was absolutely destructive because of the way it severed our own um, human knowledge from objective reality. And uh, and so that and, and he thought all forms of older education, you know, Christian and non-Christian, um, whether we're talking Plato or John Milton, um, had some notion of there is an objective reality. That objective reality isn't just that, okay, there's a world out there, but that, that there's truth and, and falsehood there's good and there's evil, there's beauty and there's ugliness and the, the destruction of that way of approaching the world. And, and, and then education in that older model was always about, um, sort of introducing and and shaping students to respond to reality in appropriate and fitting ways. So that you should love what's lovable, you should hate what's what's uh, wicked, um, you should delight in what's delightful, and that there were certain human responses to reality that were good and certain ones that were bad. And education was about shaping those loves and shaping th- those um, desires. And that the modern notion sort of said, no, um, it's scientific. Or maybe Lewis's term would be scientistic, sort of the elevation of science, quote unquote, to uh, almost de- de- uh, deity, and um, and technocratic, and was really about sort of producing a what he called the conditioners, these um, basically the the masters of of the universe who are going to henceforth shape what humanity will become, and and so they have to get away from all notions of traditional morality, they have to jettison all of that so that they're then free to basically attempt to be gods. And he just saw that. I mean, the, the amazing thing is he reads a, a an English textbook and goes, this is going to destroy everything. But it's remarkable how many of his works are, are addressed to that fundamental error in education. Um, I was actually just reading on, on this subject. Last night I um, had the privilege of, of teaching on the silver chair with uh, some of the C.S. Lewis institutes here in the country. And I did a, a kind of a book club about a hundred people or so. And, uh, and the silver chair is remarkable because of the way that it presents um, modern, modern education is, and that, that sort of philosophy is woven into uh, the book in the form of enchantments. And he thought of it that way. There's, there's a great quote in, in, um, I think it's in weight of glory where he says something like, um, you know, do you think I'm trying to weave a spell as he sort of, conjuring up this older notion of uh the argument from desire there's something more than just the the physical realities that we can see there's there's real truth real goodness real beauty do you think i'm trying to read a spell perhaps i am but remember your fairy tales spells are useful for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them and you and i have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years now here's the here's the why it's relevant for this Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all of our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. And, and so I think that's a major, so notice there, the education and the philosophy that is an enchantment that sort of smothers us. And, and we, in Chair, it's the green witch's enchantment that makes us think, there's only underland. There's nothing beyond. There's no sun, no Aslan, no mm-hmm. nothing beyond. Um, that sort of thing, he thinks, is a dark enchantment, and we've been um, lulled to sleep. And many of his works are basically a wake-up call. Mm.
1: Well, why does he use, instead of using natural law, uh, why, why does he use the Eastern term, the the Tao, as he's making his case in abolition of man? I,
0: I think because he's trying to show that that it's not simply a Western thing. So... So the notion is, if if you talk natural law, people immediately sort of think of Thomas Aquinas. Um, they might think of sort of Greco-Roman, um, you know, Plato, Aristotle, um, Seneca, somebody like that. But it's going to be seen as oh, that's just a Western thing. And and his whole his whole thing was, uh, no, it's not. It's a human thing, and mm-hmm. therefore, um, sort of the objective morality and the objective truth um, that that reality just is, and you don't get to decide what it is. It just is. Um, that sort of notion, he says, is is universal. You find it in the Western tradition under that sort of natural law language, but it shows up just as well in Confucianism, Hinduism, Buddhism, all have the notion. And so he uses that that term, the Tao, as a way of signaling this is a universal human reality um, yeah. and not simply a culturally conditioned Western reality.
1: Do you think that was because, was he anticipating kind of the war on the West that we're seeing now?
0: I, I think so. I mean, I think even in his day, you you had... Um, even some of his friends, I think, kind of get got pulled into various sort of odd influenced religions, theosophy, and some of these other things that were that were basically getting into you know the the creative evolution, the pan, the pantheistic turn. Um, it's it's remarkable how often in his writings he's he's addressing sort of pantheism. See, on the one hand, there's sort of this um, um Orwell sort of perspective of it's all machine, it's all atoms in motion, it's evolutionary, whatever. But then alongside that was sort of this um, pantheistic philosophy, the life force. And he recognized that and said, there's been lots of those kind of religions. Many of them are pagan or Eastern. And so I think he he did anticipate that there would be an embracing of that on the part of even Western intellectuals as as basically whatever it is, it ain't Jesus. right? It's not the God of the Bible. It's some other um, philosophy that will be presented as the new cool thing and which Lewis says, this is as old as dirt. Men of pantheism is like one of literally the oldest philosophies on offer, um, and uh, and it's it's false.
1: Now, Joe, I, I could pick your brain on Lewis all day. Uh, before we turn the page here, <laughs> tell us your Twitter handle because when you when you're speaking on Lewis, you tweet something out, and you're you're a great follow by the way. What is your handle so our audience can follow you on Twitter?
0: Yeah, uh, at Joe underscore uh, Rigney. Um, you can find me on Twitter there. And I, I sort of do, um, my, my Twitter philosophy is observe. And then, um, every so often I'll just, I'll just get a a bee in my bonnet and, uh, and we'll kind of, kind of go off on some things. And so, um, if if you get there and it's, I'm just holding my fire, I'm keeping my powder dry. Um, it'll eventually show up.
1: All right. All right. Very good. Well, let's turn the page and talk about Bethlehem College and Seminary. And congrats again. You're, you may be one of the youngest college presidents uh, in the nation, so so quite an accomplishment. Um, one of the many hats uh, of college president is, is kind of visionary. So I'd like to hear maybe a bit about what Bethlehem College and Seminary is for our audience if they don't know about it already. But then what is, what is your vision for the next five or ten years for the college?
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, um, we're we're forging some of that right now. Um, as our our lead our uh, um, lead team is is actually we, this morning had a fantastic meeting where we're we're beginning to dream about what the next four or five years uh, are going to have in store for us. At a basic level, sort of um, at our college, I'll speak specifically to our college. We do have a seminary where we you know pastors training pastors in the original languages with a, a heavy focus on you know the sovereign God, sacred book, serious joy is kind of one of the ways we talk about our seminary. Um, at our college, uh, we've just gone through a review, having been around now for about twelve years, and uh, and the way we'll, we we talk about it now, what we what we're aiming to do is we want to teach students great books in light of the greatest book for the sake of the Great Commission. So those three elements: the great books in light of the greatest book for the sake of the Great Commission is the basic substance of what we seek to teach. And so, great books is is sort of an obvious the, the great texts um, of history that have stood the test of time and have spoken to the human condition Um, in literature, philosophy, history, what have you. We want to read those texts because we think there's value there, both when they're telling the truth and even when they're lying, even when there's falsehood, there's still things that we can learn errors we can avoid, but we want to do that always in light of the greatest book, the Bible. Um, And so we're robustly Christian all the way down and even more specifically um, influenced heavily by our founder and chancellor, uh, John Piper Um, and, and, uh, you know, under the banner of Christian hedonism, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so there's a a heavy focus, not only on the mind, but also on the heart and the affections as we read the Bible. And then there's, there's a strong focus for us on the great commission, which includes both sort of all vocations, right? Christian witness in every sphere of life, but also has a, a particular focus for us, um, in terms of frontier missions where Jesus has not been named. And, and we really do have a heart to see Jesus glorified in places where he's currently not. And so what that translates into us from a program perspective is we have a, a core, about a three-year core. We call it omnia, all things coming from uh, uh, Colossians chapter 1. Um, in him, all things hold together. So our omnia core is basically we walk through global history um, and we treat all of the disciplines in their own sphere. So we have literature courses and philosophy courses and Bible courses. Um, but along a historical timeline, so that when you're reading Homer, you're also reading the Bible, um, because those are, you know, happening at the same time, Um, and you're reading ancient Greek philosophy, and then you move forward in history, and you're reading the New Testament next to uh, Greco-Roman philosophy and Greco-Roman history, and we move forward into the Middle Ages and the Reformation and on to the modern period, so a three-year omnibus approach to to, um, our core, and then at the end of that, students have the, the choice to of majors, one of three majors a theology and letters major, which goes a little bit deeper into the great books, um, a theology and biblical studies major, which goes deeper into the greatest book, uh, and then a, so Hebrew, uh, everybody has Greek or Latin, um, and then that one is Hebrew. And then, and then the Great Commission, we have a theology and global studies, um, which focuses more on anthropology, history of global Christianity, a number of other elements there, to that, that for those who feel called to go to the nations. We, we want to send them out, um, with, uh, as, as best equipping as we can. So that's, that's sort of the overview of our program. And, and our hope is that we produce, produce mature students, um, who graduate and are ready to witness for Christ, um, with wisdom and wonder for the rest of their lives so that there's a, a wisdom they've, they've seen a lot. They know a lot. There's a breadth. And there's a wide eyed Lewis like, um, wonder at the world in which we live. Um, mm-hmm. But that is oriented and governed by Jesus as the lodestar. Um, that's that's what we want to produce. And, and um, stepping into this role here as president, um, I still get to teach. Thankfully, that was part of the deal when they said, you know, when I said, "Hey, I'm, I'm willing to do this, but I need the classroom too because I, I love teaching students um, and I love reading great texts with students." And so um, I'll still get to teach. But uh, but I'm thrilled about what Bethlehem College and Seminary is going to be doing here in the next five to ten years.
1: That's fantastic. So, Joe, there's a, a feature of Bethlehem College and Seminary that puts you in a little cluster with maybe 15 or 20 other colleges, if that many, um, and that's that you don't take any federal funding at Bethlehem College and Seminary. Uh, I think of schools like Hillsdale or Grove City or Wyoming Catholic. Um, parents I talk to love this. Um, people are, are fed up with, with this close connection with the federal government Having any control at all over a Christian college, it, it's kind of wild that it ever got to be like this. Uh, tell us about this decision because it's not an easy decision to make to withhold from taking federal funding.
0: Yeah, um, well, for us, it was a surprisingly easy decision because it was one we made from the get-go, and it was it was intentional, principled, and um, you know, being a newer college, you know, uh, we were founded, we had some apprenticeship sort of stuff earlier, but 2009 is sort of the when we began to offer degrees. And, uh, and we could, coming into that environment, we could see writing on the wall, we could see with the cultural trends. And so it was actually a relatively simple decision for us. I, I in some ways, uh, have, have some s- sympathy for schools that made those decisions, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, not really seeing, didn't read enough CS Lewis and didn't see where this was headed. Um, but for us now, it's, it's a very simple proposition. We want to be able to accomplish our mission. And we don't and and take it, you know, he takes the king's coin, becomes the king's man. If you take the funds from the federal government, there are strings attached and they will pull those strings and they increasingly are. And and it's something I think parents especially ought to be mindful of as they think about schools they're going to send their students to is um, whatever the historic mission of those schools, they're, you know, a good portion of their budget is now dependent upon um, jumping when the federal government says to jump. And, and those schools are going to be faced with hard choices, whether to stay faithful to their mission on issues like an anthropology and all of those sort of things that are hot button cultural issues. That's, that's the front burner one for many, but it actually now extends to identity politics and the whole range of things. As the federal government begins to tighten its grip in those areas, schools that are dependent on federal funds are going to have to make really hard decisions about their programming, about their faculty and so forth. And I think some of them are going to buckle. And schools like us and like you, those, those other 15 have made the decision to say, no, you know what? We're not going to take that federal financial aid. Instead, we're going to adopt a different model of education, um, a different funding mechanism for our education. And for us at Bethlehem, it's even a little bit different than some of those schools. Um, you know, so for us, every student receives a serious joy scholarship, which basically covers two thirds of the cost of the education. So we, we have a price. We know what it costs and we're lean and mean. Um, we're a church-based school, so we share facilities with Bethlehem Baptist Church um, and, uh, and are based there. And, and our, our students are woven into the ministry of Bethlehem and some other churches in our area. Um, but one of the advantages of that is our our expenses are lower. Everything goes to pay for our faculty, primarily. It's, it's our, that's where the money goes. Um, and it means we have a lower price point. And then even that we have a group of committed donors that have said, we believe in this education. And so we can offer um, basically a $10,000 scholarship so that what the student actually ends up paying, I think right now in tuition is about $6,000 a year. Um, $6,000 a year. $6,000 a year. And that's, and then, and then we don't have any federal financial aid. So you got to cover that. But, it, but, um, but w- what it allows is one of the, our, our goals is that students would be able to graduate debt-free. Right. They don't have the shackles of student loan debt that they took on in order to get their undergraduate education so that if God calls them to the mission field, they can go to the mission field. If God calls them to get married, they're not thinking, well, I got to I got to make sure we can make our payments and all of those sort of financial considerations that that shackle students after they graduate. We want to just remove that and say we can offer an education and we have a group of committed donors who say we believe in this. And if there's some if there's some listening right now, give me a call. But we have donors who believe in this. And as a result, we're able to offer um, a highest, the highest quality education um, at, at a affordable uh, price to the student. And it's, it's a great because we, we look at, you know, when I I've started now having to go to these um, sort of uh, gatherings of presidents and, and other you know, higher ed sort of meetings. And, uh, and I've got friends who have been in the business a little bit longer I've been, that I've talked to. And they all say that, you know, one of the big questions is, what are we going to do when they pull the strings? What are they going to yep. do? What are they going to do? Yeah. And just to be free of that and to say, we don't have to worry about that at all. They may they may yank our accreditation at some point, but at that point, it's going to be much farther down the road. And we'll deal with that when it comes. Uh, but for now, we can stay on mission because we didn't take the money.
1: What what do students do after they graduate? What, what are Bethlehem alum doing now?
0: Yeah, we, we've. Um, Obviously, we've only been around, you know, twelve years, so we've got uh, we don't have the same kind of, and we're and we're intentionally small. I think w- one of the things is we have a, a, um, an intentionally small focus that we can invest in students in a life on life mentorship um, community of formation uh, capacity. Um, but we've got students who've gone on to law school um, and have ambitions in that direction. We've got students who've gone on to other kind of grad schools, gone on to ministry, gone on to the mission field. A number of students who've gone to the mission field. We've got students who came in and their ambition was um, their ho- holy ambition. Was was I want to be a mom. I want to raise the next generation to hope in God. And we just say, man, if, if that's your holy ambition, we want to help equip you um, with a robust education. You will be able to um, serve your children and your, your church and your community with this kind of education, um, even if you never enter, quote unquote, the workforce. Um, but we've also have students who have gone into, uh, we got some students now who are doing real estate. Um, we've got students who have who are just in sort of general business sorts of jobs. So we, we've, we've got students in all uh, pastoral ministry, Students who have gone all kinds of places. We've been really pleased with with uh, the caliber of our graduates. I get I get uh, emails from seminary professors that are friends of mine who say, "Hey, keep sending us your students." We um, they they come in with a um, they're ahead of the game in a lot of ways because of the rigor of our program. So we're really happy with the caliber of our students, um, and and hope to continue to send them out into a variety of vocations um, uh, as they as they graduate.
1: You know, Joe, I, I got to tell you, I, I've asked this question to, to a number of college presidents and others, and never heard that response before. That there is a focus and intentionality that you want to you want to you want to be forming great moms and dads. Uh, that, that's a really beautiful thing. That, that that's a focus, and some of the fruit of the education at Bethlehem. Um, so, final question for you. This is always my favorite question. My favorite part of the Anchored Podcast here, and the question is this: Is there one? One book, one text uh, that has maybe been most uh, formative for you in your own life, maybe one that you come back to year over year, and one that you would recommend above others uh, to to our audience.
0: One? Are you kidding me? Okay, um, I'll here. Uh, I'm going to cheat, uh, and I'll say um, in terms of au- I've got a couple of authors. So my um, Jonathan Edwards is a tremendous influence on me. I've taught classes on him over the years, um, and uh, In for which God created the world is of course as a text that I teach for our, our seminarians. Um, And it's just sort of one of those grounding. Why did God make everything? Why does he do everything rigorous, philosophical, theological? So I'd, I'd point that direction on the theology side. Um, Obviously John Piper has been a tremendous influence on me. So any of his books you could, you could chase down probably the, the the, the more interesting stuff I would say. And in Lewis, we've already talked about him. So beyond that, um, Shakespeare and Jane Austen are probably my two sort of favorite authors of in sort of the literary thing. Like I said, I'm an Anglophile. Um, I teach Shakespeare at, Bethlehem College and Seminary. It's probably my favorite course to teach. It's a two, two semesters. We work through a bunch of plays. We're in the middle of it right now, about to start uh, Cymbeline and then Winter's Tale. Um, and there's just you know Shakespeare was just such a fantastic observer of human nature. Um, and uh, and there's a great it's just a, it's a great opportunity to dig into the personal, the soul, um, relationships. There's all sorts of stuff there about what desire and how we work and things like that. And then on the political side. Um, societies, governments, rulers, all of that sort of stuff. So Shakespeare, you know, I, I have a dream of someone, you know, writing a book, you know, Shakespeare explains it all. Um, and uh, because, because I love teaching Shakespeare. And then Jane Austen, I think is just absolutely brilliant um, as a novelist. And, uh, and so, you know, Pride and Prejudice is an unbelievably shrewd book on epistemology. <laughs> so, I mean, um, I read and you sit there, you know, a lot of high school and I, I didn't read it in high school, but, um, uh, you know, a lot of guys read it and go, it's just a bunch of ladies sitting around talking and it's like, yes, but they are unbelievably observant. And Austin is such an uh, observer of human nature and what makes us tick, uh, and how communities work and, and, uh, there's surprises, there's apocalyptic moments. It's just, uh, Austin's brilliant. And so, uh, I love teaching, uh, Jane Austen. um, uh, every year, as well, Pride and Prejudice, Emma, those kind of books. So those would be a couple. I could I could talk more. Man, John Milton, again, an Anglophile. So um, Dostoevsky, I enjoy teaching Brothers Karamazov, um, and so those are ones that I go back to again and again because I teach them every year or every other year. And uh, but every time I do, I get I feel I get enriched, edified. My my brain starts um, popping. I see things, see new things, um, and those are the best kind of books there are.
1: Again, we're here with President Joe Rigney. All the best, Joe. Thank you.
0: Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week.